This podcast episode is powered by Afropods, the world's number one podcasting platform for African stories. Candid Life Podcast, where we turn our broken hallelujahs into melody lines of impact. And now I'm your host, Lydia Gargo. Today's theme is the second part of what I'm calling Lessons I Learned from My Father. And today I am delighted to have a very good friend of mine. Yanni, welcome to The Candid Life. Oh, thank you for having me. That's very good. It's a pleasure. Excellent. Oh, by the way, family, I just want to say that Yanni is actually in Manchester, England. I met him quite a number of years ago. And over the years, we've done a couple of things together from music to church and just jamming because we're both musicians. And so that relationship has grown over the years. So it's great to have him on the show today. Well, Yanni, I would like you to, first of all, tell us your full name. Tell us a little bit about where you're from. Okay. And maybe share a little bit about your background. Yeah, well, my name is Yanni Kupuroglu. And funnily enough, most of the times my surname doesn't fit in all the forms. And it's annoying that I have to spell it all the time. But, you know, that's something I have to go by. Um, I grew up in Greece, in Athens, as a kid. And then when I was about 21... I decided to come to England. I grew up in a, I'm trying to avoid the word strict evangelical community because strict sometimes it means restrictive or abusive, where I believe the community I grew up was full of love and basically freedom to become who you are. Uh, It's just my parents were devoted Christians. So they wanted to make sure that everything they do is according to what God wanted them to do. And because of of their responsibility in the church, my dad would play the keyboard and my mom would do a lot of counseling in the church they felt obliged that their kids they're growing up in a decent manner but not in order to fulfill any you know uh, obligation it's just uh, this is who they are they wanted to show the love to their kids and I can say that I'm really privileged to grow up you know in such a extended family not just my family but the church family that I grew up with and it's always funny how you see your life as a kid and how you see your life now as a kid, you know, it's different when you see it when you are a kid and when you're, you know, as a kid, you think you're restrictive, you know, your parents are abusive and, you know, you're terrified of them. And then when you grow up, you think, well, it hasn't been that bad, really. You know, just my parents really love me. And obviously, I guess Greece as well, there's a lot of emphasis in family and, you know, community. It kind of like shaped the way I am in terms of uh, how I share information with people, how open I am with others, you know, how I receive and give love to others as well. You know, I think my background, just the pre-21, it really shaped me, you know, to, I believe, to who I am now. That's great. So how many siblings did you have in your family? I've got three more siblings, so we're four all together. So I'm the second. Um, I've got my brother, Danny, who lives in Nigeria. My younger brother lives in Greece. And then I've got my sister that lives with me here in England. And uh, we're just running a business together. So I'm curious, though, why did you immigrate to England? Well, I always had that dream, as a, obviously as a teenager, to do something in music. So mm-hmm. I had a, a friend of mine from church that... He had just come back from London 
I think he came through a, a church mission or something like that. He was telling me if you go to London or to England, you know, find these American black musicians that they play incredible music and then you will definitely make it and all that stuff. So he just put something in me that I thought perhaps that's my dream because I can't see my dream happening in Greece. You know, the music is different. You know, the environment doesn't really help that. I remember as a 19, 20-year-old kid, I guess the whole Greek culture is about having a great life, like great holidays, great community, you know, eating well, swimming in the sea, holiday home. It's all about the life. And I remember sitting on the beach. It must have been about 19 or 20. And I'm thinking like, I can't have that life. It was just my dream to do something with my life that perhaps the immediate community that I was living with, it wouldn't give that to me. So, and that's not to say that there were no opportunities in Greece. It's just that the opportunities that I was looking, they were not there at that time. So, yeah. So what did your parents actually do? What was their livelihood? My father was uh, having a, a socks factory. It's a type of business that involves a lot of hands. You know, you need to just, you know, get the machine to get the initial sock. Then you need to sew it at the top, turn it inside out, send it to be colored, coming back. It needs to be ironed. Then it needs to be like matched together, putting the uh, labels and stuff. So it was really highly intense. So it's something that... As a small child, I would go to school in the morning, then come back home to eat, and then I would go to my dad's factory and work. And my dad basically, I think it was a difficult time. Four kids, economically not great, so he had to work really hard to make ends meet. So I guess that's where I've learned from my dad to work really hard. And I guess a lot of times, like, we wanted, like, a, a day off on the Saturday or something, you know. We had to work really hard, you know, during the week. You know, so, some of my dad would feel satisfied that we make enough money from the week so I can have, like, a bit of a, a break on a, on a Saturday. My mum would be offended if I say that she's just never worked because she would say that uh, having four kids and also having my dad in the factory, it was more than work. Now, obviously, I haven't raised any kids, so I don't know what it feels like. So I take her word, uh, especially with the circumstances that she grew up. Yeah, my mum my, my was mostly involved with the church. Like, I, I remember at home, it used to be like an open home. Everybody can come in and chat for hours, you know, come in the morning, having tea, you know, anything, having lunch, you know, dinner, you know, until <laughs> my daughter would turn the lights off. Uh, so she, she didn't have a secular job as such, but she would, I remember she would constantly be active in anything. She would either paint or making flowers from candles, from wax or something. It was very artistic and stuff. So, yeah. I'm just curious though. So you came to England with this dream or idea did you feel those expectations were met when you came or were you surprised when you came to England and thought, mm, this is a little different from what I was expecting? What was your experience when you came to England? Well, well one of the things that really surprised me when I came to England, because obviously I, I had this dream that when I come to England, I would turn into any radio station and I could just listen to Christian music. Now, I was almost shocked to see that England was not that, dream you know there were hardly anything christian on the radio uh, in fact the only like uh, christian radio i could hear was like i was listening was like a pirate radio from Mossside on sunday morning with some kind of like very amateur sort of amplifier 
So the, the Christian music scene was not quite there, you know. I did join a few bands, but it just, you see, the way I was doing it, I think was a bit wrong because I was studying in the university because obviously I, I, I had like a bit of a scholarship from the European Union um, and I was trying to make it into bands. So I would travel the country with a what was some kind of like country pop band, you know, when I came. And then I would go really tired on my lectures in the morning, you know, in the university. And my university degree would kind of suffer. The music would not go anywhere. And also I remember when finally we got a bit of a, of a connections with uh, word music and that I was just about to probably hopefully give in a bit of a contract and start touring. Most of the members of the band just said, that's not for me. I, I can't see myself touring around England. Um, I've got a family, uh, you know, I've got a dog. I don't know. It was like, it was like suddenly all the excuses came there and I felt a bit disappointed because I, I felt like if you want to follow your dream, you need to follow it all the way, you know. So if you start becoming difficult and you're looking for your comfort, then perhaps you need to evaluate whether you're actually dreaming or you're realistic with your dream. So I was a bit disappointed with that. You know, I did join a few other bands, but there was nothing major. And I believe may, mainly because the majority of the members of the band that didn't really have the commitment or dreaming big enough to say, you know what, let's let's just do it. And as you know, that you know, music is a very competitive industry. So what did you study when you were at the university? I did a first year in applied life science in Manchester University. Uh, and, and I came as an exchange student, so I was supposed to go back to Greece after that and finish my degree. But to me, that was the escape plan, you know, getting out of Greece. You know, otherwise my dad would not let me. So then I, I asked the university to, to take me on and they said no, because you did really badly. And I really did very badly. But the reason that it was because I didn't speak any English, you know, when I came here. Um, and then I just walked, I remember, down the road to Manchester Metropolitan University. And uh, I remember I had an interview with the guy. And he goes like, so do you promise me? that you're not going to fail again. I'm like, I promise you, I'm never going to fail again. And guess what? From the second year, touring around with bands, you know, in the country, I just failed badly again. So it wasn't, to me, it wasn't my passion to study microbiology or something like that. It was just something because, I, you know, I was, I had the idea, if you don't have a degree, if you don't study anything, then um, obviously you're not going to make it in life and you always have to have something like a backup plan. I did it, you know, I've got the, the degree, but yeah, it wasn't my dream. So I couldn't really, you know, get excited about it, I guess. Family, we're going to go ahead and take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to carry on with the discussion. Welcome back. And if you're joining us, this is the Candid Life Podcast. And I'm your host, Lydia Gargo. Today, the theme is lessons I learned from my father. And we are privileged to have a very good friend of mine, Yanni. You know, when I met you, Yanni, you've always been a very independent person and someone who's always desired to work for themselves. Yeah, it's always been like that from you fixing those computers and Oh my goodness, it's been endless. You know, what are some of the things you did? <laughs> and, you know, I don't even have to ask you what motivated you towards, you know, starting your own business. You know, your parents definitely 
were very, very much a part of that. But just tell our listeners just briefly, what were some of the things you did before you started this bag factory with your sister? Just really briefly. Well, obviously I got got a degree in microbiology and nobody wanted to employ me because I was overqualified for the jobs I was applying. So I I eventually, I ended up doing um, data entry, which is basically entering data on the computer. It's kind of the lowest, you know, jobs you can get. And that was through an agency that they could kick you out anytime. I worked for the Royal Bank of Scotland, for CIS Insurance, you know, constantly moving about. Um, And it's quite sad, really, because I ended up getting nearly sucked three times. Um, I remember I had like a deadline of three months in any job. I I couldn't do something that is not creative. Just, uh, and I would probably take the mickey of what I was doing. You know, like I would go for a chit chat. um, I would go to the toilet for 20 minute breaks. You know, I would do anything not to do the job that they were giving me. I remember my last time I was at Royal Bank of Scotland. I was working part-time and I was basically going there to chat with my Spanish friend. I wasn't going there to do any work. So I remember the manager picks me up one day. He goes like, can I have a word with you in the office? And he goes like... "Um, Yanni, we've been monitoring your performance and I've just looked at the lady behind you and she's entering 80 cases a day. He says, you are entering eight. <laughs> no. So, so he goes like, um, I'll give you until Friday and if you don't improve, you're out <laughs> of here, off you go. And he just left me. I, I went back to my chair. I spoke nothing. I was red, embarrassed. And, and I remember I said, God, I'm a really bad repu- reputation for your name in here. You know, I, I don't want to do that. I want, I, I want you to help me do something. So uh, at that time, that was like the beginning of the online trade with eBay, you know, early 2000s and stuff like that. So I thought, what can I do? You know, obviously my dad will always encourage me to fix stuff for some reason. He had faith in me that I would fix anything, you know. He never gave me any training. He gave me a massive soldering iron that the plumbers used, and I had to fix the TVs and the radios and stuff like that. So I thought, well, perhaps I'm good with fixing stuff. So I started fixing uh, video players and uh, getting them from the local market, fixing them and selling them back to uh, the paper. Or You know, obviously there was no internet at that time. That, that was my first job. And that picked up after the video players. Then, especially with eBay, I would buy stuff secondhand from the market. You know, I remember I used to have an old webcam and I would take photographs, try to clean the carpet and make them look really nice in an old generation, you know, photo. And then start selling things over the internet. And that grew up to a business, you know, and then fixing more and more laptops until to the point that everybody discovered it. And then obviously I had to do something different. And then my sister was doing something similar with bags. So it came to a point where we just kind of merged, you know, our knowledge together. And she asked me to join her adventure. So, yeah. So I'm assuming you eventually packed it in with the Royal Bank of Scotland. Because I used to work part-time there. So I used to go seven o'clock in the morning, go to the market, buy my stuff, coming to Royal Bank of Scotland with two bags full of things and leave one o'clock, coming back home, taking the photos, upload them on the internet and then do that again. And I had, I remember, I put like a a threshold and I said that if I ever start making 500 pounds a month from this, Royal Bank of Scotland is going. 
And the moment I started making 500, I just gave my notice and, you know, the rest is history, I guess. Yeah. So in starting this business, I mean, what has been some of the joys and, you know, the challenges? And then we're going to take a quick break and we'll talk a little bit about your relationship with dad. Well, I guess the, I don't know if we call it joys. Uh, to me, it's like, I, I, mean, I don't know how to say that, but I, I used to be the lowest paid person in church. You know, some of my friends that were just boasting about the money that they're making and all that stuff. And then um, I, I remember God gave me a, a, like a, like, like a vision or something that uh, some people that have been, now this is, I'm going to be careful because, you know, we don't measure uh, like success in life based on financial success, you know, but God told me that people have been in the back that will come at the front. I guess he meant like anything that you like, you will fulfill it and you will bring it to fruition. So to me, the, the joy of it is that God trusted me with something. And it's kind of like shows me that if God wants, you know, he can do anything. And, and he can do anything with somebody that's been sacked three times, you know, uh, with somebody that um, nobody really gave him an opportunity. And to me, the joy is that, you know, God gave me that opportunity. He answered my prayer that you don't want to be a bad reputation for me, but then you need to follow my lead. Uh, I think especially in the beginning is just how God opened doors and opportunities. Uh, one of the scenes is like um, my, myself, and my sister, we live very close to each other. So there's only one house that separates us with. And uh, I remember my sister, when we set up the initial business, she would be retail and I would be wholesale. And it would basically be two people working from their bedrooms and it's funny how we start selling leather camera bags to places like Harrods in London, some of the most prestigious shops from our bedroom. It's crazy how God start opening things without me doing much. It's just that it was like God's timing. And to me, throughout the whole journey, I guess, that's, there's somebody behind me that's like a kid, you know, it just raises you up and grows you up in every aspect of the business. The choice has been it's just that God is behind me in all this. Some of the been a very difficult journey. Um, and I guess anybody would say that the most difficult aspect of any business is just dealing with people. Uh, you know, the agro sometimes, the language, you know, the atmosphere that sometimes, you know, the people can bring in the factory that can be really draining. And is there are times that I felt like, you know, enough is enough. I'm, I'm kind of giving up or my mental health is going to go. So the, it's been like this, but it, again, it's been the assurance of God telling me, no, this is where I want you to be. That kind of like kept me throughout the years and throughout the difficult times. Emily, we are going to go ahead and take a quick break. And when we come back, I'm going to ask Yanni a little bit more about his relationship with dad, because that's what it's all about. It's Father's Day and the lessons that we've learned from our fathers. So we will be back in a couple of minutes. Don't leave. Um, welcome back uh, to the Candid Life. I am your host, Lydia Gargo, and today we are privileged to have Yanni with us. Okay, let's just carry on um, with our discussion right now. I just wanted you to tell me a little bit about your relationship with your dad and, and really what was your dad's role in your life growing up? I spent quite a lot of time with my dad because obviously he had the factory. So 
most of the time of the day, if I, if I wasn't in school, I was in the factory with my dad, mm-hmm. where, you know, that would be straight after school, about 1.30, 2 o'clock in the afternoon, until 9 o'clock in the night. Um, my dad is not the person that talks too much, you know, or kind of like... Uh, take you on the side and give you a pep talk and speak to you in your life and you know uh, really deep theological stuff or you know motivational things um most of the stuff that I learned from my dad it was basically by just being with him and just observe what he did so uh, the fact that he loved me it was just because of the way he treated me it wasn't necessarily because of what he said to me you know, because I was around him a lot of the time, I don't think there was the need of actually talking too much because it was like I, I was I'm observing your life and I'm kind of fitting within what you do. So I guess our relationship, my relationship with my dad changed over the years. You know, as a kid, it was kind of a bit more of a dependency. You know, as a teenager, I was a bit more of a rebel. I wanted to get out of the house and not come back. So I had full control of my life. And later on in life, it just, it became more of an equal, more of a friend, rather than the person that I'm scared of or somebody that has got authority over me. So it's a great relationship. Like you said, you know, as time went on, that role of dad changed as you got older. Was there any time in your life where... There was just this tension there. There was a misunderstanding there. And you had to kind of both figure out how to work it through. I think there was no much conversation with my dad. The time that I felt probably that when I, I actually started rebelling, it was uh, when I remember one time I had my friends coming in the night and my dad came up to the room about half 11, 12 o'clock at midnight. I must have been about 17. And he goes like, you go home now, you know, to my friend. And I felt like this is it. You know, I'm getting out. You see, I'm, I'm not the person that I rebel with shouting. I'm a quiet rebel. So at that time, I thought there's no point. You know, this, this is somebody else's territory. So I need to make my way out after that my dad is is really respectful and he never pushes his opinion he can tell you what he thinks but he will never tell you do this he will always say what about this and especially when you're getting to the stage that you're gonna get married as well you know all the parents are trying to push you towards one direction you know my dad will suggest things but he will never say do this so our dynamic has always been like that i guess yeah so there's almost like a mutual respect. Yeah. I, I need to say an example that I remember just before I came to England, I was looking for a job so I can get some money together and just come to study. And I remember my dad said, you just come and work for me. I'll give you £10 every day. Sounds good for two, three hours, you know, £10. So you were working the flea market at that time. And I remember there were days that he will make £8 in the full day. And then my dad will get his wallet out and give me £10. And it just it struck me because I'm thinking like, but, but dad, you made eight pounds. He said like, yeah, but I said to you, I'll give you 10 pounds a day. So he never kind of, you know, the fact that you're my son doesn't mean that I can take advantage of you. You know, I remember later on, he came here. He knew I was a, I had a business. He goes like, can you buy me a battery charger? I'll pay you back. And I was like, come on, dad, you know, you don't need, he said, no, I'll pay you back. You know, I, I bought him a charger, I remember from Marple in the electronic shop. I came back, he, he took 20 pounds and he gave it to me. And I'm thinking like, you know, he's the type of person that he will respect you and he won't take him for granted that you are his son. So you're obliged to do specific things. 
And that helped me out, not with just my relation with my dad, but in relation with everybody else. That if my dad treats me this way, that he's almost like entitled to some stuff, you know, then I, I bet I've got to treat everybody like that. Were there any other moments that you would like to share about, you know, things that your dad taught you? I think one thing that kept me grounded with my dad is that he's never impressed, you know, with things. But I'm wondering whether, all, however, he's... He's not impressed in front of you, but then he would go back somewhere and he would say, oh, my son did this or something like that. I, I was so happy that we employed, I think, 20 people at that time. And I said, Dad, you know, the business is going well. We employed 20 people. So he goes like, so? I used to employ 40. You don't know how to respond, you know, because you're expecting like a well done or suddenly my son. But to me, this is what kind of kept me to think that I can always try for more. So he didn't do it in a badness. It's just he's naturally always wanted to do things with his life. To me, I love that he doesn't tap me on the back to be comfortable where I am. He just puts me. I remember this, this is the thing with my, my relationship with my dad. It's just the little things in life. I, I remember when uh, it must have been about seven, eight years ago when he used to go to church. I traveled to Greece and he goes like, do you want to come with me You know, to church? I'm playing the keyboard. So I remember it was like me and my dad at the top of the church. And um, at some point, um, he just played the wrong note. And he's just looking at me and he's smiling. And I'm smiling back because, you know, I got it. You know, you, you play the wrong note. And to me at that time, it kind of like it was the first time that I felt, this is, this is not the dad that I'm scared of anymore. This is not the dad that he will tell me what to do, what not to do. This is the dad that he can share his life. I've learned through my dad, that this is the relationship that I've got to have with God. At that moment, my dad is sharing one of his moments and he's laughing with me, you know, and I felt like there's nothing that I can give him and there's nothing that he can give me because we are not in that kind of relationship anymore. We're in a relationship that we're kind of sharing life. And I think that a lot of times with my heavenly father, it's just, you know, we, we develop a relationship that, it's, it's a bit about what God can give you, what God can protect you from, you know. And we forget that it's a relationship that God says, I, I want to be inside of you. I want to be with you. Jesus is called Emmanuel. And to me, like, this is the thing that I've learned from my dad, that it's not anymore what I can get from him or what he expects from me. But it's the fact that we are together and we have that relationship. Nobody can break. That's really good. I mean, you went way ahead here. So. Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Which is wonderful because that was really what my question was going to be about your personal relationship with the Lord. You grew up in church. Can you just give us a little snapshot of how you came to a personal relationship with God? Well, I, I became a Christian really early when I was about eight years old, you know, because of fear of staying back you know, after the rapture. I don't know if you remember the 1960s movies that they were absolutely, uh, they would be totally inappropriate now to be shown in kids because there are like thriller movies, totally 18 classification. But at that time I said, I want to give my life to God because I don't want to be left behind. But to me, the transformation was not until I came to England because now I was in a place that there was no church to check on me. There was no parents to check on me. So any decision I had to make was just for myself. And uh, I had to make decisions that 
I could do anything. I could mess up badly. I could be whoever I wanted and I wouldn't give any account to anybody. You know, I told you before that I came to do music and I was always pursuing that and I had the plan that I'm going to do music and then when I'm 50 or 60, then I will dedicate my life to the Lord and I do mission, you know, and stuff. Uh, but it seemed that God kind of turned everything upside down. I will say that although I gave my life to the Lord when I was like about eight years old, it was, it was not until probably early 2000, just after my divorce, I guess, that I came to God and said, God, I've tried my life. At this moment, have a go. You try, you know, take control. I'll do anything that you want me to do. You lead, I follow. And I think to me, this is where my life really turned upside down. This is when the, the business started. This is where God started raising me up, like as a person, like uh, psychologically and mentally. He showed me that there's, there's no point in being gifted and talented if your character is nowhere. Put me through so much stuff. He basically showed me that to me, is more important who are you in me rather than what you can do for me. But then I, I could start seeing things happening from that time, but it wasn't the way I was expecting things to happen because I had a different time frame and things that I wanted to do. But God, like I'm saying, that his main aim was to change my character and make me strong, you know, make me bold, make me somebody that I wouldn't give up straight away when things were hitting me. You know, I tried to please people and like to be liked as well. God, I had to just destroy that and say, like, if you want to come with me on the journey, most of the times you won't be liked, but you need to follow me. And that. And well, this is what I like about God. And, and I can see the relationship with my father. I said before that my dad never imposed his opinion on what I, I, I had to do. So he would give me his idea and it was up to me whether to take it or not. And, and it's funny that I was wondering why God was waiting until nearly 2009 for me to make a decision to say, God, have a go. Just try it out. And I did, Lydia, I said, God, I don't know if this is the best choice in my life, but I want to just try it out, like losing weight and try another diet. So I'm going to give you a go like another diet, you know. Um, and I say, am I making the biggest mistake in my life here or it can be the best decision I've ever made? The things that I've seen that God is doing, I can only say that just being incredible because I couldn't think myself even leading a business, you know, with people, making decisions that affect others, doing that and multitasking. I mean, multitasking for me is incredible. I can't do more than one thing. You know, <laughs> you know that, so some, some people say men cannot multitask. That's definitely true for me. So I guess the way I've seen my earthly father behave, I can see almost like an identical way of God treating me exactly the same way. And I'm glad I finally did it. So as we close out, as someone who has been blessed to have a relationship with your Heavenly Father that you just beautifully described, and your earthly father, you know, that has grown over the years, then what does it mean for you to have a candid life? I think to have a candid life, having an authentic life, it wouldn't be without allowing God to do something in my life because everything that I wanted in my life, it was a copy of somebody else's life. So to me, it's just uh, the moment that God took over my life and I said, you take control, that to me has been the authentic life because I've seen the way it operates in my life is not the same as the way it operates in somebody else's life. Even the way... God is running the business. 
is running it in not the conventional way. You know, both my sister and myself, we don't have a degree in business. This is to me the incredible thing about, you know, God giving you a candid life is the fact that he picks up anybody and he creates a life that is so tailor-made to yourself, that is going incredible kind of purpose and to make it to that measure, you know, that the Bible says to make it to the measure of Jesus Christ, you know, so he's trying to elevate you to that level. So to me, like the authenticity is that God keeps some parts of you. I still like music. I don't stop, you know, playing the guitar. But then the way God kind of intricate put things together in my life, I would have never been able to work it out myself. I love that. You're just basically talking about, you know, for you, the candid life is just allowing God to work out his purpose, his plan, his Absolutely. And just listening to what you said, not like God takes away the things that you enjoy. He just weaves it in. Yeah, Nick, can I just thank you so much for coming on this podcast and... Uh, all the way from Manchester, United Kingdom via Zoom. Such a joy talking to you. So family all around the world, thank you for your support. I feel the love like a steady wind behind my back as I sit down and produce these podcasts. I really would love to hear your thoughts and your contributions. So please connect with me on livethecandidlife at gmail.com. That's livethecandidlife at gmail.com. Follow me on Instagram at Lydia Gago. And please subscribe and share the podcast with friends and family. And I will make this one promise. When you listen to the podcast, the stories you hear will inspire, challenge, and empower you to live differently so that you can impact your generation and the next for good. Until then, remember your story matters because you matter. So live the candid life 24-7. And Yanni, thank you again. Thank you for having me. Inaendeshwa na Afripods.